This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is Kevin Simmons. I'm the lead pastor here. And if it's your first time with us, we're so happy that you're here today. We're in the middle of a series that we started last week on Easter called Redo, really examining the freedom of God and how the freedom of God gives us a second chance. And we're going to do this all month long. I mean, it's going to be Easter every single Sunday, the whole month. I'm just, just strap in, get ready. It's going to be a lot of fun, okay? I promise. Every single week. I mean, this week, I'm going to get a little pastoral on you, and I'm going to share a, a, a message that many of us need to hear. But before we get into that, I, want, I just want to take a moment and celebrate, okay? I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times we get in a hurry, and we don't celebrate things we need to. Your kids do something awesome, and you're like, oh, that's great. Let's go to ball practice, right? You, know, you don't take time and say, let's celebrate that. And last week was a moment we just really need to celebrate because last week we hit an all-time high in attendance. We had 719 people here for Easter. That's an amazing, an amazing accomplishment for a church that's only five years old in a town of 16,000 people. See, that represents, in our town, 4.5% of our total population. That's unheard of. It's just unheard of, all right? And you guys, so many of you served and gave to make that happen, but that's not just the only number that matters because last week, 69 people, 69 people made a decision to give their lives to Jesus. That's amazing. I mean, that's remarkable. And so thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for serving. We just want to celebrate that. And we're going to continue to celebrate that moment, the moment of resurrection that gives us freedom and an invitation into a new way of living for the rest of the month. Now, today I'm going to bring a message to you called Overcoming Hurt, Finding Freedom in Pain. Okay? It's going to be a little bit more pastoral than normal. I'm probably at times going to get a little bit more preachy than I normally do. Okay, just so just strap in. All right, just strap in. It's going to be a roller coaster. You're going to feel good at some points. You're going to feel really bad at some points. All right, just get ready for it. It's coming at you anyway. Okay, Jesus said it that way. As a matter of fact, he said it in John 16, verse 33. He said this. I've told you all this. He's just finished teaching on the lost principle that God wants the lost to become found. I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Not peace in your circumstances, not peace in your bank account, not peace in a relationship. You find peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus tells us, point blank, you will experience difficult times. And they will lead to pain and hurt. This is for everybody in the room. Nobody is immune to this. None of us can escape it. It's just a truth that we live in. And you will experience difficulty for several reasons. 
The first reason is that you'll experience difficulty as a result of your own sin. You'll do something stupid, you'll disobey God, and then you'll experience the difficulty that is associated with your disobedience. But then, that's not the only reason that we experience difficulty and pain. Some of us will experience difficulty as a result of someone else's sin. Someone else does something that's sinful, and we love them. We're in a relationship. It has a direct impact on our life. But this third one, this is the most complicated one to really even understand, that we will experience difficulty as a result of the remnants of the first sin. Do you remember the first sin? This is Adam and Eve, right? God tells Adam, don't eat from that tree. If you do, you will surely die. In other words, death is going to enter the world. They disobey. Death enters the world. Death doesn't just enter into our bodies. It enters into relationships. It enters into the natural world that we live in all the way down to the cellular level. Our cells are literally dying. Death entered the world because of sin. So we'll experience all kinds of difficulty. The different kinds of difficulty that we'll face. Let me just give you some examples. First one is physical difficulties. How many of y'all woke up this morning? Your knees hurt, your back hurt, neck hurt, just tired. Just feeling it. Feeling your age, right? And the truth is, is that all three of those reasons, we can see them in physical difficulty. Some of us are feeling it because we were stupid when we were younger. Right? We didn't treat our bodies well. We didn't take care of ourselves. Our knees hurt because we got hurt and didn't have surgery when we were supposed to. Some of us have been there. But some of us have experienced physical pain because of someone else. You were at a stoplight minding your own business, stopped perfectly still. Somebody else did not stop. And they hit you. It was not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong, but you experienced the pain that was associated with it. And then some of us have experienced pain that is a result in our physical bodies of the results of original sin, that first sin that broke everything, even DNA. Some of us have experienced a predisposition in our own bodies towards certain illnesses because of things that are broken in our own physical bodies. We've experienced physical difficulty. You don't only experience physical difficulty, but we we'll also experience relational difficulty. Relational difficulty. It's impossible to get close to somebody and not experience conflict. It's just impossible. Can I just give you some, some help? Uh, some of y'all have heard people say, we've been married for 25 years and we never fight. Okay? One, laugh at them. <laughs> All right? And their definition of fight and your definition of fight are probably not the same thing. All right? What they probably mean is we've never hit each other. I don't know what they mean, but they don't mean that we have never experienced conflict. Because relationships experience conflict and difficulty. As a matter of fact, the Bible would say that it is as if when we come together, iron is rubbing against iron. There's friction involved in it, but it makes us better. 
Iron sharpens iron. So can I just help you out with this? If you're here today and you're married, don't gauge your marriage and the success of your marriage and the quality of your marriage by what you perceive in another marriage. Because often all you see is the highlights. You don't see the backstory. You see the Facebook and Instagram posts when everything looks pretty, but that's not the whole story. And some of you are gauging your marriage by some families, maybe some older couples that you love and you just cherish their marriage and you want their relationship, but you have no idea what they went through to get to the point that they're at. That they're end of their story, you're in the middle. Never judge your middle by somebody else's end. Okay? Just don't do that. You're going to experience difficulty. And your friends are going to experience difficulty in their marriage too. So can I just help you out? When it comes to giving advice to your friends when they're struggling in a marriage, don't leverage your personal opinion. Don't leverage your personal experience. Point them to the Word of God. Point them to the Word of God because here's what happens. Oftentimes, when we point to our experience and our opinion, what we want to do is we want to edit the Word of God. But what we need to do, see, we need to echo God's Word, not edit God's Word. So when you have that friend that's going through difficulties, God's Word says that he hates divorce. Hates it. Echo God's word. Echo God's word. That's what we need to do. Don't edit it with your own opinion. And we're going to experience personal difficulty. Some of that personal difficulty is going to happen as a result of our own sin. Some of it is going to happen as a result of other people's sin. And some of it's just going to happen because we live in a world that's broken and there is sin that is at work to destroy and totally annihilate our life that God designed for us. So let me give you three things that are very important for you to know before we get started today. Number one, some of you are like, we're, we're just getting started? Yeah, just getting started. All right. <laughs> Strap in, y'all. We'll be here until about 2 o'clock. Just kidding. Um, number one, you will get hurt. Now, you cannot get hurt, but the choice to not get hurt really is don't have a job, don't leave your house, don't watch TV, don't get on the Internet and read a blog, don't do anything. I have no idea how you're going to eat. You're going to be like, the, like cultivating and growing your own vegetables and all that sort of thing. Right, you can do that and not get hurt. But if you interact with people at all, interact with ideas at all, your feelings are going to get hurt. You will get hurt. Promise. Number two, when you're hurt, you will be tempted to shift your focus away from God and away from yourself. You will be tempted to blame somebody. I'm going through this difficult time because of her, because of him, because of them, 
Because they did that, because they made that, because they said that. That's why I'm going through that. All because of them. When our focus shifts away from God and from ourselves, we stop looking at the solution and start looking at the problem. And as long as our hearts stay fixed on the problem, we're never going to overcome. See, number three, overcoming hurt completely depends on your response to the pain. Completely. Because here's the truth about God. God's already paid for it. He's paid for your freedom. So now it's up to you and your response. Overcoming hurt completely depends on your response to the pain. So what I want to do is walk through the life of David and look at how he responds to pain. I don't know if you know who King David was. David is anointed to become the next king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. And then Samuel leaves. And there's a a problem because there's already a sitting king and his name is Saul. And there's this tension that grows. David becomes a national hero after he slays the uh, Philistine giant Goliath and becomes a mighty, mighty warrior in the eyes of the nation. And when that moment happens, there's a great tension that amounts between the sitting king, Saul, and the appointed next king, David. Saul wants to kill him. So what does David do? What does David do in that moment? What does David do when he's been hurt by somebody who he's been very close to, who's been a mentor, who he's served? What does David do? Number one, he continues to honor Saul as a king. He continues to honor Saul as the king. He doesn't talk trash about him. He doesn't defame him. He doesn't tell stories about him. He continues to honor literally up until he receives the news of his death. Do you know why? Because he realizes that he is king, not because of who he is, but because of who God made him to be. God made him king. And if he dishonors him as king, he's dishonoring God. And there's no point in the scriptures God ever gives us the prerogative to dishonor another human being that's made in his image. David never dishonors Saul. Number two, he creates distance so that God has opportunity to work. He leaves Jerusalem, takes a few men who are loyal to him, who've kind of been rejected just like him as well. And he creates distance and his desire is that maybe God would move in Saul's heart. Maybe God would reconcile this relationship. I don't want it to be this way. But I'm going to get out of here so that God has a chance to work. And then number three, he trusts God with outcome. He trusts God with outcome. He doesn't take the outcome into his own hands. As a matter of fact, several times he has an opportunity to do that. He could kill, in several moments in this story, he could kill Saul. Solve the problem right at at his own hands. Take the life of Saul. 
but he never does. He trusts God with the outcome. So I want to give you five things to do when you've been hurt by someone. Five things to do when you've been hurt by someone. Number one, refuse to dishonor the person that hurt you. Refuse to dishonor the person that hurt you. Refuse to gossip about them. Refuse to slander them. Refuse to talk negatively about them. Refuse to even share the story unless it has the potential for redemptive purposes. Refuse to dishonor them. Because, listen to this, there's not a moment in Scripture when God gives you permission to dishonor another human being made in His image. And there's no way that you solve sin by sinning. Refuse to dishonor them. Number two, do not retaliate. This one's hard, y'all. It's hard. The first thing that goes through my mind when someone does something to me is what I can do to get them back. I'm not going to talk to you for three months. You're going to ask me to move. I ain't going to say yes. I ain't going to text you back. Just going to let you move. Not my help. You ain't getting my help anymore. You're going to ask me for advice again. I ain't giving it to you. We think of that. It's where our mind goes. But listen to this, Romans 12. Dear friends, never take revenge. Notice it says never. It does not, that's non-conditional right there, right? There's no condition in which this can apply. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God, for the Scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Here's the problem. When we choose to retaliate, we tell God, I don't trust you. When we choose to retaliate, we tell God, I don't trust you with the outcome. I'm going to take this into my own hands. Number three, and I need to say this because we need to know, in cases of abuse, we need to create distance for safety. David actually models for, for us this. And there's some I want you to understand that the principles of forgiveness and reconciliation do not give permission for you to stay in a relationship where you're being physically abused. If you're being physically abused, you need to create distance so that you can remain safe, especially if you have kids, so that your kids can remain safe. It does not mean that you walk away from the relationship, that you don't pray and hope that God restores and heals, but it does mean that you get out and you get safe. David got out and got safe in hope that God would restore the heart. And that's the next principle that's there. Trust God to convict and change them. Trust God to convict and change them. You want to know something? We're horrible at this. We're horrible at this. Because here's what we do in relationships. We see something that's wrong, and what we want to do is point it out. Um, did you see what you just did? Did you notice this? You keep doing this over and over and over again. It hurts my feelings. And what happens is we start to play the role of the Holy Spirit. 
We start trying in our best efforts to convict someone of their failures and wrongdoing. But can I just tell you something that you may not realize? God's a lot better at being God than you are. And if you'll get out of the way, he'll be able to do his job, which is to convict and change. Because that's not your job. One of the most freeing principles that we can ever realize. That it is not my job to try to convict somebody of their sin. That's God's job. And then number five, forgive them as freely as God has forgiven you. This might seem like a relational principle between you and them. It might might seem like that. It might seem like, well, you know, I need to forgive them because then the relationship can be restored. Can I just tell you something? It's not just that simple. The issue of your capacity to forgive somebody that's hurt you is grander than just the simple restoration of that relationship. It's pervasive. It goes deep into your relationship with God so much so that in Matthew 6, Jesus would say this. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. See, the image of sin in Scripture is that we were enslaved by sin. We were put in jail by sin. And the work of God was to come through and to release us from that slavery. But when you refuse to forgive other people that have hurt you, it's as if you continued to sit in that jail cell after Jesus paid the price to open it. Just sitting in there. When all you have to do is leverage freedom and forgiveness to walk out. But just like David... Many of us not only are going to experience hurt that comes from someone else, we're also going to experience the hurt that we leverage to somebody. We're going to blow it. We're going to hurt somebody. David becomes king after Saul is dead. He reunites Israel, recaptures Jerusalem, takes the Ark of the Covenant back into its rightful place. He he. Uh, has several significant military victories early on in his kingship. And then he remembers a promise that he had made to Jonathan, the son of Saul, and takes his crippled son, the only one still alive, Mephibosheth, brings him into the palace, adopts him as a son. David's reign as king is going well. Until one day, he's looking out over, the landscape on top of the palace and he sees a beautiful woman bathing in the river. He uses his authority to bring her into the palace. He uses his power to coerce her to sleep with him. And before long, he receives the news that she is pregnant. She's married to a military man. His name is Uriah. He's a good guy. David calls him in. He says, I want you to take a break from the military. Go spend some time with your wife. Now, Uriah knew that this was against the law. And so instead of doing that, he actually put a camp right at the gate to the city. 
I refuse to do that. I'm supposed to be with my men. So David sent him back to the battle with these commands for the generals. Put Uriah at the front of the line where the fighting is the fiercest. David murdered Uriah to cover his own tracks. And the prophet Nathan shows up. Tells him a story. He says, David, I want you to know something that happened in your kingdom. There's a rancher that has a bunch of sheep and then there's a, a guy who only has one. The rancher went over and took the sheep from the guy who only has one. David becomes very upset. Well, we must kill this man. And the prophet looks at him. David, you are that man. You are that man. So what does David do? The first thing David do is David confessed his sin against God because we need to understand that when we sin, it's not just relational. It's not just sin between another human being and you. Every sin that is committed is a sin against God. We see that in 2 Samuel 12 as David says this, and David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. And the prophet Nathan pronounces God's judgment over the house of David. This baby that has been born out of this relationship is going to die. And your family is going to live in drama and turmoil because of this. So what did David do? Number two, David mourned the consequences of his sin and accepted the responsibility of his actions. While the child became ill, David fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed, believing that God in His mercy might change His mind. He was distraught and broken. But when the child died, David got up and went back to work. And his servants wondered why. Well, the reason... Why was it he had accepted the responsibility? He mourned, but he accepted the responsibility for his failure. And then number three, David trusted God with his future. Trusted God with his future. So I'm going to give you four things to do when you've hurt someone. Four things to do when you've hurt someone. Number one, you need to repent for your sin against God. And you start there. Your sin is not just simply relational sin against somebody else. It is sin against God. Repent for your sin against God. Number two, confess your sin to one another. A lot of us feel very uncomfortable with this stage. We don't like to tell other people how we have sinned against them. We don't like to describe it that way. 
But the book of James makes this very important. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. As we confess our sins to God, we are forgiven and restored in our relationship with God. But when we confess to each other, we have the capacity to open the door for healing. That's why a lot of us are forgiven, but we're not healed. Because we haven't been willing to confess our sins to one another. Number three, we need to accept the consequences and take responsibility for our actions. You sin, you failed, it's your fault. Take responsibility. Don't blame anybody else. Don't make excuses. Just take responsibility. And lastly, because the future is often uncertain, and it was for David, trust God with outcome. Trust God with the outcome. David, after all the dust had settled on this, reflected on this in Psalm 13, verse 5 and 6, where he said, I have trusted in your steadfast love. In my heart will rejoice in your salvation. And I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God is merciful and gracious, and good if we'll just get out of the way and let Him be God. Many of us have experienced that. We've been hurt. We've hurt others. But David's life goes on to show us the next level of that. When you're hurt by somebody that you love, David is going to have several sons, and through a series of events, his son Absalom is going to raise an insurrection against him as king. He's going to try to take over the kingship from his dad. Think about that. His own son, his own flesh and blood, one that he loved, starts to raise a rebellion against him. So what does David do? Number one, he leaves Jerusalem and abdicates the throne instead of war to spare lives and destruction. He just says, fine, you want to be king? Be king. I'm leaving. And David left with the men who were loyal to him. Because through deceit and lies, Absalom had tricked many people into their allegiance to him. Number two, he gives time for the truth to surface. Because he knows if he waits long enough, people are going to finally see what's really, really, really happening. It gives time and it gives space for the truth to surface. But this is the important principle. He remains more concerned about his son than he is about his throne. David cares more about the relationship than being right. And we see this When David receives the news that his son Absalom has been killed, we find that in 2 Samuel 18. A man named, the man from Ethiopia arrived and said, I have good news for my Lord and King. Today the Lord has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. Notice this. What about young Absalom, the king demanded? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, May all your enemies, my Lord, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. 
David realizes that his son is dead. Look at what he does. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. As he went, he cried, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son. If only I had died instead of you. Why? Because he cared more about the relationship than being right. He cared more about the relationship than being right. And put his faith in God that if he could continue to focus on the relationship instead of trying to make a point. See, the truth is, is that in life often we're given a chance to make a difference or make a point. But you don't often get to do both of those. And David made a decision, all right? I'm going to value the relationship above being right. That requires faith. It requires faith in the God that is sovereign and just and good. And in seasons of pain, faith always gives God room to move. Always. David always responded in faith. You see, when we understand the depths of God's forgiveness to us. And at this point, David understood the depths of God's forgiveness to him because he had been through it. He had wrecked his life. He had been restored by God. When we understand the depths of God's forgiveness to us, we are compelled to offer other people a redo. It's impossible to be close to someone without getting hurt. Jesus told us that. He told us there's going to be seasons of difficulty. There will be pain. And today, some of us in the room, we need to give other people a redo. They've hurt us. And we need to forgive them. And we need to give them a redo. But some of us are living with guilt and shame over our failure and hurt to someone else. And today, we need to give our own selves a redo. Because Jesus, look at this. Jesus purchased our freedom from sin on the cross. And His resurrection is the invitation to redo the way we live. I think for some of us today is the day that we accept that invitation. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.